This is Top Floor, episode 51. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 51. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast right up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. Don Gallagher's first hotel job was at the front desk of the Phoenix Park Hotel in Washington, D.C., after which she quickly switched over to the dark side of reservations, revenue management, and sales. Dawn took a detour in Boston, including working at one of my very favorite historic hotels, the Boston Park Plaza, which is like a thousand room property. But after too much snow and a set of Irish twins, Dawn returned to the DC area where she has remained ever since. As Chief Commercial Officer of Crescent Hotels and Resorts, Dawn leads the company's commercial teams across more than 100 hotels and advocates for diversity in an industry that is still woefully imbalanced. Today, we are going to talk about the evolution of commercial teams in the hotel business, which I promise is a lot more fun than it sounds. But before we do, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals with burning questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Raina. And Raina asks, with all of the talk about work-life balance and quiet quitting which is a very hot phrase right now. Do hotel companies still expect or require people to relocate for career advancement? This is a question that's come up so much for me recently, Don. What do you think? I think that this has been an evolution for years. And when I first got into the business, when you knew you got into the hotel business, you knew you had to move. Like there was no staying put. Um, you knew you had to move to one or two or three locations. And it was kind of like the call comes on a Friday. You're going to be in Birmingham, Alabama Monday, and you're going to love it. I think that in the last 20 years, we know, most importantly, that people do not move. That if you're going to have a, an interesting job in the hotel business, likely it's going to be in one area. Maybe it's a downtown area. Maybe it's a suburb or a resort. But the moves are not required, and it's not required to advance like it was in the past. You know, in order to be a GM or some, you know, another exec position, you had to move a couple of times. That's not been, at least in Crescent's DNA, but not in the DNA of the industry for a while. In my opinion, it's very old school. Everybody knows from a work-life balance perspective that if you have a good home life, you're going to be great at work. If you don't, you're not going to be great. That makes a lot of sense. And I completely agree with you. I don't think it's fair to require people to relocate. I will say that I feel like I supercharged my learning and development by experiencing a lot of different types of hotels and a lot of different markets and all that stuff. But a lot of that I did through task force versus picking up and moving to 25 different cities over 10 years or whatever. 
your first hotel job was at the front desk, like so many people, and you ultimately landed in revenue and in sales. Do you think that hotel salespeople specifically have to work in operations first? Further to that, does one discipline, like does either food and beverage or rooms, better prepare someone for a commercial strategy path? Is there any any rules of thumb there? You know, it's a great question. I'm a fan of those who have worked on the operations side for many reasons. The first and foremost reason is you have to have empathy for what you're selling and what you're going to put an operation through. Um, but it also, when I think about sales and you think about the relationship with a meeting planner, you're more equipped as a salesperson to sell when you understand the operational side, when you understand what check-in and check-out flow will look like, when you understand flow to different meeting rooms will look like. You know, does it have to come from food and beverage or, or operations? I think it could come from both because I do think sometimes the Achilles heel could be group sales selling banquets and never understanding not the banquet piece, but maybe what happens in the kitchen. And the tight turns that you end up putting through, you know, in the kitchen. I will tell you, we had an interesting situation during COVID, you know, God, not love COVID, but COVID, (laughs) where we had a lot of sales team members, if they were left on property, they were cleaning rooms. They were vacuuming meeting rooms. They were doing things that they had never done before. And today, their empathy level for what they put the operation team through is at the highest it's ever been. And their empathy, their appreciation for what they've gone through may not have been in the past something that they thought about, but something that you know they have today when they sell, they sell with more gratitude and they believe that the teams are worth so much more today than maybe they did in the past or just didn't think of that piece of it in the past before. That makes a lot of sense. This year, your title changed from Chief Sales and Marketing Officer to Chief Commercial Officer. As our industry moves to a commercial strategy model, how would you describe the difference? Like to your grandma, if you had to explain it. (laughs) First, Susan, I think because I did both revenue and sales, I believe in leading as one organization that is not siloed at all. I believe everybody has an equal voice. And in that equal voice, you know, I'm going to talk revenue when revenue is required. I'm going to talk sales when sales required. And I want to make sure that we as an organization focus on total revenue opportunities, that we're not siloed, that a dorm does not have, and actually we call them director of revenue strategy, that they don't have a separate role or goal or incentive program than a director of sales and marketing, that there is complete alignment together on what we're looking for in those two roles and that they should cross over and it shouldn't matter and that you broke down those silos and you created the strongest partnership you can. And so since I kind of grew up in that, I felt like, you know, our organization it is like that. So we have in, in, in effect, always been commercial. It's, we've just never talked to the language of commercial because that word, frankly, is still evolving in most companies today, right? But to us, we never had silos. To us, 
it was always an all total revenue strategy. You know, it wasn't, you know, one of our principles inside Crescent is no excuses. And that no excuse principle is, oh my God, you know, I just got the star report and oh, we had too much group on Tuesday night. Or we didn't have enough group on Tuesday. Like those are the two things, either too much group or not. <laughs> it's always and, one or the other. <laughs> right? Exactly. You know, I, you can almost write it down, circle, which one are they going to go with this week? But more importantly, how do we use that great time to say that strategy didn't work? Let's change our playbook. What do we do differently next time? Both of us are to blame. We both agree that that was the right strategy. It didn't work. Darn it. But now let's focus our efforts on changing the strategy, changing our playbook for the future, but not pointing fingers to break down the communication or the strength of the relationship. I know that you consider your current job at Crescent your dream job. What are a couple of reasons why it's your dream job? And have your criteria for a dream job changed over your career? Yes and yes. (laughs) It is my dream job. The job I always wanted, Susan. And, you know, when I was a front desk clerk, I wanted to be front office manager. You know, when I was front office manager, I wanted to be GM. I always had these lofty goals that I was on this path and I didn't know where it was going to end me, but damn it, it better be really, really far down the line and it better be a stretch and I better lean in and I better get there. So when I say, you know, I'm in my dream job, to me, a dream job has several qualifications. Number one, working with fantastic people, working in a company that allows everyone's voice to matter and working for a CEO that, you know, tilts towards driving revenue versus others. So, you know, I think those three things work together for me. But when you work with a team of individuals who, you know, wake up every day to serve the hotel, to serve the owners, and to drive revenue and think about things differently, it's just a great environment to be in. And it's infectious, infectious for all of us to get better and do better. Crescent was one of the only hospitality companies that did not furlough corporate staff in 2020. How were you able to do that? And how do you think it's impacting the way that you handled that period and the culture now? So our CEO, Michael George, made a bet on us and knew that we were, you know, we had reduced the teams on property, all of the brands reduced the brand help, helps bad word by the way, but reduced the brand support by 75%. There was no support there. And so he made the bet that our corporate office teams were going to be more needed for each of the properties to survive than any time in the past. So in order to serve our owners and to make sure that we could do the best we could for the hotel, we needed to be game on. And so that was the bet he made. And we all took it hook, line, and sinker. We are all 120% loyal to what was done because, again, every day you had to worry about what was going to happen. We all really dug in to each hotel, whether it be helping with leads, finding group business. We likely never communicated group business as much as we had done through COVID. Hey, we found nursing business in San Francisco. We found that in all the other 120 hotels, right? So whatever we would find, we really worked as a group to drive it to the hotels and to make the hotel successful. 
how has that helped us on the other end? You have a corporate community of Crescent employees that's 100% dedicated to the mission and the mission of making Crescent the best, making an employee and associate experience the best, but also making the hotels the best. Through COVID, we actually acquired more hotels in those two years individually than we had acquired previously. There's always a, a you know a bit of hotels that are sold and hotels that, you, that come into the system, but we had owners that we had one hotel with that we now have four hotels with. So it strengthened us. It strengthened our relationships with the owners, and it strengthened us moving forward in order to to grow and grow the right way with the right owners that we want to as we continue to move forward. That leads perfectly into my next question. As an industry over that same period of time, like the last two, two and a half years, we've seen so many mergers and acquisitions. Crescent's always ranked in the top five of third-party management companies. Around 120 hotels, I think, right now. Is that accurate? So why aren't we seeing headlines about you guys snapping up a bunch of smaller companies? So that's the greatest question you can ask, Susan. We are a company that's not served or managed by outside investors that are pushing a company to grow, grow, grow for the sake of growth. We grow with owners we want to do business with and we want to partner with. We believe that at that 120 hotel level, we're big enough to recruit from, we're big enough to have the best BI systems from, and but also small enough to make sure that we touch and make an impact in every hotel and know every associate. So we don't want to merge with anybody. We want to continue to make sure that we are true to our hotels and we're true to our owners and that we don't have an outside investor that's pushing us into a direction that is not the way that this company wants to go forward. That's really interesting. We were talking about brands a little bit earlier, and you've held corporate positions in both a big brand, Starwood, and big management companies, including Interstate and now Crescent. Your career sort of, I think, followed the industry trend from a time when brands owned and managed a lot of their hotels, if not all of their hotels, to now when most of the brands own and manage fewer than 10% of their properties. Can you reflect on what you think drove that transition to the sort of asset light strategy for brands? Like, what do you think was the motivating factor there? And I think I already know the answer, but let's hear what you have to say. You know, I think that when I started, owners owned hotels forever and the brands owned the hotels as long-term assets. And I think the evolution of part of the hotel business is, frankly, even the difference where people call the, a hotel an asset and not a hotel any longer, right? Um, it's become more transactional, more real estate-based. And through that, I think that the brands understood that they don't want to be heavy on the ownership side. And also, at that same time, there were a lot of investors buying a lot of hotels that wanted to have them managed separately. So at some point there was a, you know, to me there was a division between church and state. When I did work for Starwood, just like when I worked for Omni, they were 100% owned hotels. There were no managed hotels. An outside owner was an interesting concept. It was just, it was unusual. We didn't 
really know how to talk to owners. We were just the brand and the brand said, we do it this way and we're going to do it this way. Versus today's environment where your management company advocates, first of all, has great relationships with the brand, but advocates for the owner and what's right for the hotel and what's right for driving revenue in the NOI for the hotel. You know, the, the brand, and again, depending on the brand that you work in, you had to worry about what your brand positioning was in rate. If you were a Westin, you couldn't you couldn't go too low or you couldn't go higher than a St. Regis, uh, regardless of whether you had 10% occupancy or 100% occupancy because you needed to make sure that you stayed in that those old food chains, those old tranches that they put them in. So I don't know if I answered your question, but I will say that the evolution came from more owners getting involved in the real estate transaction and requiring managers to look at the hotel from their point of view, not a brand point of view, which was very, very different. That's a really interesting perspective, particularly your point about the pricing. I had sort of forgotten about that. Maybe it was a PTSD mental block of like, no matter what, you couldn't go above or below a certain band of price. That's so interesting to remember that. I knew you would have some good insight for me. We like to make sure that all of our listeners come away from every single episode of Top Floor with some specific, practical, tangible ideas that they can try either in their businesses or in their personal lives. I've talked to a lot of sales leaders, particularly recently, of course, who keep hearing, we need group from their leaders. It sort of makes me roll my eyes and it definitely makes these people roll their eyes because they're like, yeah, no kidding. If it were just that simple, we'd go out and pick a group from the group tree. Um, Of course, hotels need group, right? How would you advise a hotel general manager or a regional leader or someone who's leading sales leaders to be inspiring without sort of stating the obvious and just making them roll their eyes? So you're right. It's pretty funny, Susan. But let's be honest. You know, in our past, you've heard, you need group. Our hotel team needs to get out. They're in the office too much. They need to go visit people, right? It was just kind of those two things that you always heard. And, and you're right. We'd roll our eyes and say, yep, okay, here we go. <laughs> um, I think, you know, where we have gone is, most importantly, what is your focus on the customer? Who is the customer locally and regionally? And how often are you connecting with them? Be it for group, be it for transient, be it for catering. How have you today continued to create a very, very strong relationship with somebody who may give you business today or may give you business tomorrow? How are you making sure that you've got that connection? What does that connection look like? And how have you helped them in their business? You know, in today's world, Susan, the meeting planners are coming back, but we can be very honest to say that more importantly, it's people planning meetings. It's a great distinction. <laughs> right? In different departments, human resources, exec committee operations in different companies. So to me, part of it is how many customer connections are you making? Do you have a point to your customer connection? And how are you moving that ball down the field? Because if you're doing those things the right way, the leads are going to come in 
we're still going to be measured on the star report. We're still going to look, how did we, you know, did we miss a group? What the hell happened? How did we fix that? And so we're going to go to Nolan and find out what happened. But more importantly, making sure that our day is spent driving customer connections and making sure that the customers know that we're there, know that what we have going on and the strength of that relationship is going to give you the group and the transient and the catering business that you're going to need to be successful. Part of it is the mind shift out of you're not cleaning rooms anymore and you're not thankfully having to vacuum anymore. We're filling your time by making sure that those calls are being placed. And again, on the you know other side, finding out who inside those companies you're going to talk to again because they may not be the same people either. To your point earlier about the great resignation um, that we have going on with a lot of people changing jobs. Exactly. I was thinking about that when you said, we need to get those salespeople out of the office. Like, what are you going to canvas a neighborhood? Because everyone is working from home. Thank you very much. <laughs> There's no one to call on anymore. Right. Hotels are great right. at capturing demand and managing revenue once they have it. I think. I think that's a, a huge skill of our industry. What do you think are a couple of tips you would give for creating demand before it arrives on property? And I don't just mean for group, just in general for a particular hotel property. I think that this world has evolved into experiences and interesting packages. And if you just have the boring bed and breakfast on the shelf and somebody else has something more exciting that they're offering in a package, it's going to close more business. So today's traveler wants a curated stay. So what are we doing to help curate that environment? What are we doing at the hotel level to have more activations than ever in the past? It came from you know being a shell to being something that's highly curated and highly activated. And those hotels that understand that activation piece are the ones that are winning. Those hotels that are going to have the bed and breakfast on the shelf and the romance package on the shelf are going to get what they always got. But the ones that do create, you know, weekends, whether it's hot air balloon weekends or how are you partnering with local wineries to do wine tasting? You know, what is happening within your region and in your area that you can add into an authentic stay with your hotel? That's what's going to end up driving more bookings. And that's what also creates that memorable experience that also creates return guests, I think. I would add something to that. And this is going to be confidential to directors of revenue. The package doesn't have to sell to be valuable. People who are shopping find your property to be differentiated with an interesting, creative, innovative package and still may buy the cheapest room in the house. But that package has served a role in the decision-making process. All right, friends, my soapbox is put away and I have another question for Dawn. The term leisure keeps coming up, of course, meaning that blend of business and leisure travel. This is something I'm personally trying to get better at working on the road as well as having more fun on business trips. Since I know you travel a ton, do you have... Any tips or tricks for adding a little bit of leisure into your work? I wish. (laughs) You know, we do have thoughts about that, Susan. I think that in today's work environment where there are so many people that are working from home and that are not back in an office environment, it's easy to travel with your husband or travel with your wife 
do your you know work during the day and then go play in the evening after after the meetings are done. So we do see that more. There is more occupancy midweek in a hotel. I believe it's because of that belief that leisure component. I also think that you know there's interesting ways to look at work differently. Um, you know, do you take two weeks or a month and spend that in Florida? You know, because you can work from home versus working in different areas. And how does that help Airbnbs or long-term stay hotels? So we also see that the shoulder of the group, either pre or post, has been strengthened specifically by leisure travel. I think people want to reward themselves with more travel. And so even those that are traveling will then take two PTO days after a conference or a meeting's over to then explore what that area has to offer. So it's interesting. I can't wait to see how it, it really pans out. Do we finally find the cure for no occupancy on Sunday nights because of COVID going into this leisure environment? So I think that's that's still to be seen, but that that's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. That is the uh, sort of curing cancer of the hotel business, right? Like curing the Sunday night problem <laughs> for sure. We have reached the fortune telling portion of our show. So now is the time that we're going to predict the future, maybe cast a couple of spells, and then you know we'll come back later and see if we were right. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about our industry, what would it be? Are you going to say Sunday night? <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just wondering, how do I turn that around on that Sunday night? Moving forward, Susan, in the environment that we're in today, where a lot of hotels are managed by management companies, a lot of owners are more involved in the day-to-day operation than ever before. I'd like to continue to see the ownership piece evolve. You know, there is a partnership with most owners. Sometimes there's a contentious relationship with most owners. And I think sometimes those contentious relationships on the ownership side will impact the viability and the recruiting of associates in those hotels. It will impact that piece. So I think that is the piece that I'd like to continue to see evolve into this stronger partnership to understand that in the end, we are all out for one thing. We are out to get the best results of the hotel, to create the best environment for our associates, and, and then everybody wins. And if we all can stay on that same page moving forward, we will all be wildly successful. What's a prediction that you have for the future of hospitality that's not a wish, but a, it's definitely coming? I think that the prediction of the future for hospitality is that there is more that hotels can offer that they haven't offered in the past. That it's not an industry that we're going to have to worry about forever on the employment end. This is fun. If you are in an industry that is as fast moving as the hotel business, and you are excited about what you can do in a hotel from operations to sales to to revenue, it's going to bring people back. We're not always going to be the industry that has to fight with tech for people. I think that our industry is a very desired industry that creates so much energy for people, creates so many memories for people um, that we're not always going to be in the place that we are today, which is you know, where the help is coming from, that it will continue to evolve and become stronger in the future. Okay, folks, before we tell Don goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. 
going down. Don, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? So, you know, I, I thought about this a lot because as a mother, an overcommitted mother, <laughs> um, you know, do I tell you the story about the day that I got three speeding tickets within a matter of two hours from running late to, you know, a conference call to orthodontic appointment to whatever. Um, Or do I tell you the the funniest story about the first piece of business I ever closed at the Omni Shoreham Hotel, where um, I had just came from reservations, went into sales. And, you know, I would say that my fellow salespeople wondered whether I could or could not sell. And what, could I close a piece of business? And of course, you know, I'm like, game on. Of course, I'm going to figure out how to close a piece of business. And so I, we're having lunch with a company that had a very successful piece of business. And, you know, those were the days where you were told, get this rate, close it, make it this weekend and make it happen. And you're like, ah, okay, let me see what I can <laughs> sure, do. Sure, no problem. Right, exactly. So I remember having a very long lunch. I wasn't, we weren't getting anywhere on dates. I wasn't getting anywhere on the rate that I wanted. And I'm like, how the heck am I going to make this happen? Because I'm not going to walk back in that sales office without this contract signed. And I'm going to date myself again because you could actually smoke in a restaurant in those days, if you can even believe that. And this meeting planner just sat there and smoked the whole time, just you know, smoked incessantly while we were talking. And so finally, I, I said to him, I'm like, hey, listen, we're not getting anywhere. And I can't leave this table until I get these dates at this rate. So we're at an impasse. How do we move through this impasse? What do we do? How do we get through this impasse? And I said, how about we have a contest? Okay, let's have a contest. If I can blow more smoke rings than you, (laughs) I get my dates and I get my rate. If you blow more smoke rings than me, then we'll go with your stuff. But we're at an impasse. This is where we're at. Let's see how we can do it. So, and this is true story. I actually blew more smoke rings than he did. So I closed the piece of business and, you know, everybody laughed hysterically when I went back into the sales oh office my and we talked God. about the piece of business, but, you know, probably once in a lifetime, um, closed, but it, it worked. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I don't even smoke, but I blew some great smoke rings and, um, and, and got the piece of business. So it was a lot of fun. That is amazing. Don Gallagher, <laughs> thank you so much for being here. I know that our listeners enjoyed learning about your career and your philosophy. And I really appreciate you riding up to the top floor. Thank you. It's been wonderful talking to you as well. Thanks so much for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 51. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 